Hello and welcome to The Walk, a podcast where we discuss parenting and what the Bible says about it. God's Word contains truth, encouragement, and application which we want to share with you, the mom or dad journeying through the chaos of raising kids. From the newborn to the rebellious teenager, our mission is to provide you with hope and skills that allows you to be the parent God calls you to be. I am Tony Smith, your host for today, and continuing with our Prodigals series, we're focusing on the Father in the parable of the lost son found in Luke chapter 15. And as much as I'd like to squeeze everything into one episode, I'm actually splitting this topic into two separate episodes. So today we're focusing on the father's reaction to the younger son, and next week we dive into his reaction with the older son. So the last two episodes, we saw key differences between the two brothers and how we relate to each of them on a spiritual level. But the next two episodes will chime in to how God reacts to our behaviors when we are in the role of rebelliousness or self-righteousness. So a little recap from the younger son. He took his family's inheritance, squandered it with reckless living, fancy food, prostitutes, everything you can think of. He runs out of money. Humiliated, he goes back home and requests to be a servant under his father just so he can have some food to eat. Now, when we have children who tend to be strong-willed and rebellious by nature, there's usually a response we have directed towards them when they're making poor choices. And when they begin to learn their lesson and approach us and apologize, we also give a response. And no matter the age, 8 or 18, we as parents have a reaction. And how we react can do a great deal of healing or harm to our kids and our family unit. So let's look at our verse for this week. It's found in Luke chapter 15, but it's verse 20. And it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now we had addressed the fact that the father in this parable represents God. The way his character is described in the story does not reflect a typical earthly father. There's something much deeper about this particular father that we can't fully comprehend. And this starts back in the section about giving his son the inheritance. No earthly father would say, yep, go ahead and take your inheritance early and use it however you will. Especially knowing full well that the, the younger son is basically saying, you're dead to me. Give me what's rightfully mine now so that I can live how I want. But the father does and leaves it at that. As some time passes, the younger son comes back and how the father reacts is also kind of shocking. It says, when he was a long way off, his father saw him. He was intentionally looking for his son to return. This is a stark contrast to that of the older brother. The older brother was in the field, working, when the younger brother came to the house and was completely oblivious to what was going on, to the point where he had to ask a servant what all the noise was about during the celebration. However, the father was looking for his son. He wasn't going out to find him. He wasn't looking all over the city to bring his son home. No, he was very well at his own residence, waiting 
but looking for his younger son to return. Now, whether he knew the return would happen or if he was just simply hoping he would return, I don't know. We could argue for both cases. However, the point is that the son did return and the father was waiting for him. Now, perhaps you have an older child who decides to run away. They don't like your rules. They think they can make it on their own and want to do things their own way or do their own thing. Maybe they said some harsh words. They're ramped up on emotion and they just up and leave. There are typically two reactions. One is of anger and resentment where a child leaves and the parents say, good riddance, peace out. I want nothing to do with them again. Or the child leaves and you desperately want them to come home. You know, I met a guy when I took a trip to Istanbul, Turkey, several years ago. Now, Turkey is a country where 99% of the population follows Islam. They're Muslim. And Islam has very strict rules that must be followed. Anyways, I met this guy who had converted from Islam to Christianity when he was around 18 years old, somewhere in there, 18 to 20, I think. And conversion isn't something to take lightly with a Islamic family. It's very different from what we typically experience here in the U.S. But he said that his siblings were told first, and then his mom, and then his dad was last. And as he was telling me the story, he got emotional. But his dad, when he found out, he, his dad had pointed a gun to his head and commanded him to reject Christ or else he would kill him. And he didn't. He had said something... Uh, he had told me something about his mom pleading with her husband not to kill him and she got in the way or something. I don't remember all of the details, but instead of killing him, he, he kicked him out. Uh, he kicked him out of the house and he was never to return. He was banished from the family. And it had been several years after that event when I was talking to this guy and he hadn't seen or heard from anyone in his family. He was completely rejected isolated, left alone to fend for himself. He found a church, he got plugged in, he received some help, and now he works as a missionary and a translator. But this is one of the reactions we as parents can have. Now, that may seem like an extreme case, but the reality is those types of incidences happen all over the world. We just don't necessarily see them. But our reaction can be extreme. Perhaps we yell or scream or swear, we throw things, we get into a physical altercation. You know, all examples of negative reactions that can do harm to the child or the family unit. The father in this parable doesn't react that way. It doesn't describe his emotions. It just says he divided the property between them. My guess is that there would have been some sadness and grief felt from the father. And ever since he left, he was looking for his son, waiting, hoping, being intentional. Looking at ourselves, those that have experienced a child leave home on bitter terms, do you pray for them? Do you ask God and plead for him to change their hearts? Not just for them to come back home, but return to our Heavenly Father. As joyous as it would be for them to come home, if their heart isn't changed, then you very likely could run into the same issue down the road. The second point 
and the father's reaction was that he had compassion. He saw and had compassion on him. Yeah, there, there's a section in Matthew chapter 9, it's in verse 36, it talks about Jesus walking through towns and synagogues, and it says that he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were harassed, hopeless, like sheep without a shepherd. Very similar to our parable here, the father saw his son and had compassion on him because he knew his son was hopeless like a sheep without a shepherd, with no direction and no hope. Amidst all that the younger son had said and done before, the father still had compassion on him. And Jesus is the one who provides hope for the hopeless. And there truly is an immense amount of compassion we have when we interact with those who have no hope. There's so much privilege we have in the United States that we get this entitlement attitude and we forget that so much of our world has no hope. Take a trip to any third world country and just watch. You don't even have to talk to people. Just watch how they live, what they have to do to survive. When we see the hopeless, we tend to have compassion. When we look at our kids our own kids, with overwhelming love that you can hardly contain, you have compassion. But does our compassion stop there? Does it stop with feelings? Or do we do something about it? Which leads to our third point. The father ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. He acted. He ran. He didn't walk. He didn't lecture about his son's mistakes. He didn't say, I told you so. Actually, he didn't say anything at all at first. As parents, there's something to be said about action and physical touch. There's a connection built around physical touch from your parents. And I know not every dad is a touchy-feely type of guy. You know it's a man thing that might show a sign of weakness. Yeah, I think we need to change that way of thinking. Too many times I've talked to people who say, yeah, my dad doesn't hug me. Or they don't remember the last time they got a hug from their dad. And in this parable, the initial response comes from the father. The father ran to the son, not the other way around. Dads, hug your kids. And don't make them earn it. Willingly give them a hug and be the one who initiates it. I'm all for having parent-child boundaries, but we as parents need to hug our kids. I still get hugs from my parents, and I'm 30 years old, and I never once felt like I couldn't hug my parents. And that was something I appreciated and definitely took for granted when I was younger, because I assumed everybody gets physical affection from their parents. And that's not the case. And I'm talking not just broken homes. I'm talking Christian homes filled with godly people, godly dads that are pursuing the Lord. Hear me out. We got to hug our kids. And dads of newborns, I'm telling you, it's hard, especially when you're trying to hold and snuggle a crying baby when it just wants mom all the time. But you got to try. You got to try for your wife to give her a little bit of space, a little bit of sanity back. 
you know, make an attempt, give it some effort, do it in stages. You know, maybe it's only two minutes at first. Try to, try to hold or rock your kid for two minutes. And maybe the next day, try for three minutes. And the next day, maybe five minutes. And the next day, shoot for 10. You know, set little baby steps. Because the reality is, yeah, the baby has been in mom's womb for nine months. It doesn't know you. The closest you could get to the baby is maybe it recognizing your voice if you talk to it while it was in the womb. And I'm guessing most dads don't do that. But it doesn't know your smell. It doesn't know your touch. It doesn't know anything about you. You're a complete stranger to your own kid. So dads, yeah, it's kind of expected that the baby doesn't want you. It takes time and it takes effort. You have to embrace your kids with compassion, especially when they're unlovable. You know, even if they're stubborn or rebellious, or to the point where they leave the house expecting them never to return. Don't give up hope and be ready to embrace them when they return. Keep praying for them. Keep loving them from a distance. So often I think back to my own childhood and I was never the rebellious child. I would get irritated with my parents from time to time, but ultimately I respected their rules and boundaries. But it really set in once I went off to college. I was leaving the house. My mom was an emotional wreck crying before we even left the driveway. And I knew I could always count on them to support me. But I was definitely, it was definitely a growing experience. But the support I had from my own family was great. I could count on them. I wanted to extend that, that type of support to my own kids. And I don't know what battles will take place when my, when my children are older. I mean, right now, my, my daughters are six and three. The teenage years will come with new battles, but I hope that regardless, I could reflect the Father in this parable. And I'm not going to wait to follow with that reaction. You know, he saw, he had compassion, he ran and embraced. I try to do that now. I apply that to my life with my kids now. When one of my girls makes a poor choice, I see them by hearing their side of the story. Not angry, but calm with a listening ear. That's the first victory. Staying calm when they disobey you. And then I have compassion on them. They still need discipline. Don't get me wrong. I don't avoid discipline, especially when they do something in the, when they're in the wrong. But I have compassion on them. And embrace them with a hug, letting them know that I still love them, even though they make poor choices. So here's what here's what we do when it comes to discipline. So I'm just going to this is the real this is real life with the Smith. So this is something that we do in our household practically. 
And uh, let's say one of them, let's, let's use the younger one because uh, the, o- the older one is kind of phasing out of getting spankings. So we're going to focus on the younger one. So I bring her to her room. So it's just one-on-one. And everything is intentional. Like this is step-by-step what I do. And there's a purpose between every single step. So the first step is to isolate, you know, where it's just one-on-one. It's just me and her. And that 15-second walk typically gives me enough time to calm me down. Because if they disobey me or they defy me or they're disrespectful, like I get angry, I get amped up real quick. We all do. But that 15-second walk from the kitchen to her room, outside to her room, it helps me calm down. And I escort them to their room by holding their hand. Okay, I don't just yell saying, go to your room, I'll be there in a minute. But no, I, I, es- I am intentional. I hold their hand and I escort them to the room calmly. And I ask them what happened. So I listen to, their, to her side of the story. So then I ask her what happens. What happened? Tell her that there's going to be a consequence. And sometimes that consequence includes a spanking spoon. Sometimes it doesn't. But I'm very clear on what the consequence is. You know, okay, you're going to get two swats. Okay, you're going to be in timeout. You know, it just depends. And if it's a very grave def- uh, offense, then she gets a spanking spoon. But if it's something minor, then it could be a timeout. And you guys are parents to the point where you can judge for yourself what is severe and what is not. But sometimes it is a little bit of a battle when they get spanked and I hold them while they cry. So afterwards, there's an embrace. After the embrace, after they stopped crying or calmed down for a minute or two, we pray about the sin in our hearts and then we ask for forgiveness to whoever was wrong. So our youngest one would go apologize. Pray and ask for forgiveness from God, and then she would go apologize to whether it's me or to Laura or to her sister or to a friend. Then we end with me telling her that I love her regardless of the poor choice that she made. Then, you know, she goes off on her way. The whole process takes about five minutes. But this is, of course, with younger kids. As, as your children age, the practicality changes. But the outline remains the same. You know, when your kids are seven, eight, nine years old, you're probably not spanking them nearly as much, or you shouldn't be. You have to see your kids, and you have to have compassion on them, and you have to act. I'm not saying your compassion takes the place of discipline. Kids need godly discipline, but you need to have compassion on them. They have to know that. Their poor choices don't define them. So my encouragement for you today in our walking wisdom, it's that practice seeing your kids for who they are. Attempt to follow the father's reaction when your child rebels against you. That's all for today. Items, links, and show notes can be found in the description of wherever you listen to podcasts. We want to say thank you to Pixabay Music and for all of you that are listening. We appreciate all of your support and thanks again. This is The Walk.